Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. And, you know, often it's really healthy to ask questions and to uh, raise concerns. And if you have doubts about your Christian faith, that's all good. But if you are doubting and ultimately rejecting aspects of the Christian faith, uh, you're probably in a phase that we're calling deconstruction. It's a, a term that's uh, usually applied to that process of of ultimately rejecting aspects of your faith. And if you know someone who has walked away from their faith and you're heartbroken, maybe they've gone through what is called deconstruction. So I'm going to talk today to Jay Warner Wallace, what it means when people say they are deconstructing their faith. It's kind of a head scratcher. So I know Jim will help me uh, sort this out. Jim, welcome back. Nice to have you on. I'm uh, really glad to be with you. This is you're right. There's a lot of folks who right now who probably this is very personal for them. And and I think sometimes we you'll hear your loved ones might use that word. They might not, um, but it seems like this, it's, it's, that word in some ways, if you ask me, is is kind of given um, kind of timeless skepticism, or you know, it's kind of given them a, a new name, a new credibility, because we can just say, well, we're deconstructing. Now remember that process, that that kind of that the word that's usually used for this is really about a really critical analysis, right, of all the philosophical and the language that's used, literary language that's used. It, it, it's, it, if, if it's done on on a certain issue, it can be very academic. Most people you know who probably are saying they've deconstructed their faith may not have taken an academic approach to doing it, though. They're just borrowing the language because mm. I think it kind of gives, it kind of legitimizes the process of skepticism, which we've really seen forever. I mean, you see people who are moving away. We're reading through Jude this morning, my wife and I, and you can see that in the earliest years of the Christian movement, there were people who said, you know what? I don't like it that way. I think God's like this <laughs> and have mm -hmm. and, and tried to shape God after their own image rather than realize that they're in the image of God. So so this, I think it's just kind of in some ways it gives credibility to people who, who this has always been going on. Now the question is, what is, what's behind it? What, what does that really mean? And how, what can we do about it? Yeah, Jim, I appreciate you saying that few take an academic approach. Sometimes they, they use the word deconstruct as a polite cover for what they really mean is I'm demolishing my faith and I'm not doing it academically. Right. Well, let's, let's look at it this way. Isn't it interesting that God would provide us with enough evidence to determine that the Christian worldview is true, yet leave the evidence short enough to allow you the freedom to reject it if you want. I mean, it's, it's like any trial that you do in front of a jury. I'm going to provide you with enough evidence to render this verdict. But there might be somebody on the jury, and this is how juries get hung, who would say, no, you know what? And they can find any number of reasons to reject the conclusions of the other 11 have said, you know, it's, it's, he's guilty. Well, this one says he's not or vice versa. And it's because the evidence for that one, isn't that interesting? Why would God do it that way? Why wouldn't God just overwhelm us so that everyone becomes a believer? Because I think that, that God is, this is, this is the nature of free agency. It would mean nothing to God if, if this was an automatic decision 
or that the evidence was so overwhelming or that the, the presentation of God was so overwhelming that everyone like a robot just comes out believing in God. Mm. This is why it's said that, you know, it's faith. It's, it's, it's believing that this is true, even though you could, if you want to, that most deconstruction is really about trying to construct a case in the opposite direction. Oh, good point. So, so a lot of this is, is that if I don't want to believe this, I can assemble uh, some kind of case. And the question, of course, is that, is it a good case? You know, is it, is it reasonable? But the point is, it's not as though, and I tell us all, I think people are surprised, especially people who have been lifelong Christians. People have been raised in the church. They're surprised that someone sometimes, I used to see this, especially 10 years ago, where somebody would offer an articulate, well-structured objection. And for many people, it's like the first time they've ever heard an articulate, well-structured objection. And they're shaken by it. And I think if you've done enough criminal trials, you realize that defense attorneys are always going to offer a well-structured, articulate objection. And so just don't, don't get shaken by the fact that there's another view out there or that I can make a case for another view. I've had uh, detect, uh, 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 defendants, attorneys, make all kinds of great articulate cases only to have this guy eventually confess after we convict them. Wow. So clearly it's it's possible yeah. to make an articulate defense for somebody who's for something that's not actually true. And scripture obviously tells us that we need to scrutinize our faith. I think in Acts 17, we're, uh, now these Jews were more noble than those in uh, Thessalonica, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So we're, 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 we're supposed to scrutinize, we're supposed to fact check, and we're supposed to have, I think, a reasonable skepticism. Yeah, it is it, I always talk to people who, who maybe are are Christians, but they're not fond of apologetics, and they don't. Maybe they're asking, you know, why do we even need that, right? Uh, because they only believe that, that that faith, it's faith that saves you, and, and shouldn't faith be free of anything that would that you could you reason with? Isn't faith and reason aren't these diametrically opposed notions? Of course, they're not. But in the end, there's every one of us is going to come to the end of the evidence trail. You and I have talked about that, where you 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 know the evidence points to a certain conclusion. And we tell juries all the time, I can tell you, you know, everything you need to know, but I can't tell you everything that could be known because we don't even know everything that could be. Known. I can't answer every question for you, but I can answer the questions you need answered in order to make this inference that this this guy is guilty. But but in the end, I have unanswered questions. So do you. But that step that we render a verdict through is that step crossing over from the end of the evidence trail to the decision. Well, the same is true for us as Christians. It's not as though. I can answer every question. And most people who say they are deconstructing their faith are not doing it in an academic way where like they're like doing a Bart Ehrman approach to the scriptures and they're saying, you know, I, I see some wiggle here. I don't like the way this was translated or transmitted over the years. And they're trying to figure out, you know, they're trying to make a case for why this should kind of fall apart in your hands, you know. But instead, what they're really saying is that, that they've got a view they want to hold and they're constructing a view, uh, constructing the evidence toward that view. And of course, that's possible. All of us could do that. Look, it's not as though, again, if the case was so overwhelming, why wouldn't everybody be a Christian? Because this is not how it works. And this is why faith is still a necessary element. It's just not an uninformed faith. It's not a faith that's, that's, that's given in spite of evidence to the contrary. And it's not a faith that is rendered uh, with no evidence at all. Instead, it's a faith that is rendered on the basis of evidence that stops short of being complete. Mm -hmm. Because every case, and by the way, everyone does this. Everyone who's listening right now renders a verdict, makes a decision, actually steps in a car without 
any number of questions answered about how the car works. You you stick your key in a lock. You don't know how that tumbler works. If I asked you, <laughs> explain to me how the lock works opening your door this morning, you don't know, but you still stick your key in. You, you have enough evidence to know that that key will open your door, even though you have many unanswered questions about the nature of the lock. Well, the same thing is true for any of us that are going to render a view about any, by the way, Atheism cannot explain how the universe came into existence, why it appears to be fine-tuned, how life originated in the universe from non-life, why it looks like it's designed when allegedly it's not, how we have consciousness, how it is we have free agency, how it is we, we think that there are objective, transcendent moral virtues, and how we can even explain evil without some standard of righteousness that transcends all of us. Look, these are questions that your atheist worldview holders cannot answer, yet they hold on to their atheism. So every one of us who holds any view of the world must hold it with open, unanswered questions. And by the way, you could find yourself then deconstructing whatever worldview you have, and where are you sure. going to do it? You're going to do it in the unanswered questions. Mm-hmm. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. You can learn more about Jim at coldcasechristianity.com. If someone were to, was to start the deconstruction process, Jim, do you think that it's prompted by suffering in their life that they can't reconcile? Or do you think that Christianity is finally just cramping their lifestyle and they'd rather live for themselves? Or do you think they're looking uh, through the lens of culture and say, well, Christianity isn't as nice as it could be to everybody. Therefore, I'm going to start deconstructing. Yeah, I think uh, it's all those things. And okay. one way to kind of capture it is is that, that the vast majority of these kinds of motives are morally based. So they're either morally based because, number one, they don't understand why a loving God would allow this immoral thing to happen in the world. They are morally based because they maybe want to do something that they think they should be allowed to do, and they find moral, but they don't. Uh, God doesn't seem to agree. Uh, or it's that God throughout history has done something that they now consider to be immoral. And uh, so it's all morally based, right? I, I was listening recently to a Tim Keller. I love Tim Keller's preaching because he's one of those apologists who happened to be a pastor. So, and he's here he is working in New York City and serving there with an, a congregation of, of skeptics who would be brought in who are coming from the city of New York, very secular group. And and one of the points he made is that you know if you don't look if you if you think you can question God but you but God can't question you your God's not big enough like you you if there is a God it's it, you could question God but but your behavior is something that also God could question so I, I think in the end uh, we have to let go of this we have to say okay look what's driving this most of it is moral but it's it's not necessarily the kind of moral that you might be thinking of it's that either one is problem of evil two it's that they want to do something they find to be moral when, when the scripture says it isn't or three that they find that something about christianity is immoral either that god has done something in history that's immoral or he holds a view right now that opposes the culture so therefore god is not moral because i've already decided that the culture holds decides what's moral so in the end, we are very fond of questioning God, but then mm -hmm. God questions what we do. We are like, no, there's no, there's any God that would question us. Uh, we, we can't accept, but we, of course, get to question God. So I think we have to just be realistic that a lot of this is driven by our own pride because all moral questions are really a matter of whether who gets to decide what's moral. That's what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. So when, it, when the question is rooted in a moral doubt or a moral concern, 
Well, then ask yourself, well, who gets to decide what's moral? So it's really a pride issue. Yeah. It's that I want to decide what is right or wrong, and then I disagree with what God might say about it. You know, Keller, I, I'm a big fan as well, and I've got many, many, many of his sermons. And I remember in one sermon, somebody was saying to him, well, I need more evidence for God. And Tim said, well, where is your evidence that I need to provide more evidence? <laughs> Right. Well, and again, it's, it, it, look, the evidence doesn't, you're not going to convince somebody by way of evidence. No. God draws people. God is the, the giver of faith. But it turns out that we are allowed and, and, and actually told to, to, to say something, to provide some kind of information that then people act on. We either proclaim the gospel or some version of the gospel mm-hmm. that we think is contextualized for the person we're talking to, either spoken in his native language or the way he thinks and processes, we need to go through that portal. And that's why sometimes with me, for example, I was an evidentialist and I needed to hear the gospel through an evidential approach. What does that, that mean, Jim? Well, what I mean is I needed, first of all, why would you think any of this is true on the basis of evidence? That had to precede the, the proclamation of the gospel. Because if you think about it, every theistic worldview makes some kind of claim about how you can be reunited with your maker or achieve the most that God has for you in the next life. So the question then becomes, well, okay, so so since everyone makes some kind of gospel, not gospel, but uh, some kind of claim about eternity or claim about achieving something that is the best God has for you, well, then the question becomes, why is why should I listen to this one? And there's so much noise out there that I wasn't willing to listen to any of them. So, so for me, I had to have that gospel sent to me in a way that, hey, first of all, the resurrection occurred. And that resurrected man is in a different category than every other religious leader who ever came before him or came after him because there's only one resurrected man. And that gives him a ter- certain kind of spiritual authority. If you've been to the other side and been back, you might want to listen to that guy. <laughs> so I exactly. think that's that's where I needed that's the kind of the approach I needed to have to kind of soft and God knew that. Now that may not be what 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 your your brother needs or what your kids need, but but I think in a world that is arguing, you know, like like I, I was just wrote a, book, wrote a book for next year, and where I'm looking at all the sociological studies, it's amazing to me how much sociologists will do their best to try to make a case for anything is good enough. Any kind of marriage is good enough. Any kind of relationships are good enough. Wow. And they have to really twist the data in order to get this to work. It turns out that, that God describes us the way we really are in Scripture. And if you see that, then you're, wouldn't you like to know how to flourish? Uh, and, and, and especially, you know, so that's why I think in the end, um, it's, it's the construction. Sometimes it's just that you're trying to construct something that will allow you to live the way you want to live. Mm. And a lot of that is either is not necessarily based on whether it's true, but does it work for you? Yeah. Well, those are two different things. Yeah, you know? really well said. You know, I'm curious because there are many, many listening right now that may have a son or daughter or, or, or husband or wife that have really started to drift away. They've questioned the faith. They've said it doesn't make sense anymore. Instead of holding on to the essential claims of Christianity, they've replaced some of those with of popular ideas or culturally relevant things that aren't relevant to scripture. And if you are in that situation and would like to let us know, I'd love to hear uh, how that is going and what you are working through. 877-933-2484. We're talking about deconstruction 
kind of a polite term for more demolishing your faith. But we're uh, talking to Jay Warner Wallace. You can learn more about Jim at coldcasechristianity.com. But I'd love to hear from you if you uh, have got had a prodigal that doubted and questioned and then ultimately rejected uh, their Christian faith. We'd love to hear. 877-933-2484. And of course, if you have a question or comment for Jim, that also is the same number. 877-933-2484. Hi, I'm Suzy Larson, host of Suzy Larson Live, and I'm so excited to tell you about my new book, Waking Up to the Goodness of God, 40 Days Toward Healing and Wholeness. Are you ready for a new you? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are living in a world that's been bracing for impact for the last few years, waiting for the next shoe to drop. But did you know that posture is terrible for your physiology, not to mention your faith? God wants to retrain us, to retrain our thinking and our mind and our hearts, to set our eyes on him, to move from waiting for the next shoe to drop to anticipating the goodness of God. Thanks to our friends from W Publishing, Faith Radio is giving away 100 copies of my new book, Waking Up to the Goodness of God. I hope you will enter the drawing to win, and I pray that you do win. You can enter to win now at myfaithradio.com. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. My guest today is Jay Warner Wallace. You can learn more about Jim at coldcasechristianity.com. And we are talking today about deconstruction. That's kind of a fancy term for people who say that they are questioning or rejecting aspects of their Christian faith. And maybe some of them have walked away and said, "Mm, not interested anymore. And that has broken your heart. And we get that. And we are always wanting to pray for your uh, prodigals. So let us know how we can do that. We uh, we care about each and every soul that has uh, drifted away from the true living God, and we want them back. So uh, thank you for uh, tuning in. If you've got a, a comment or question, 877-933-2484. Jim, do you think that the churches uh, and today are are failing to wrestle with the more difficult questions about faith? Well, I think they are. Let's let's let's, go, let's take a little turn here for a second. We talked in the first section about about really, you know, the idea that some of us will use this term deconstruction. What we really mean is that we are walking away, like yes. we've been walking away for any other number of generations. Now we're just going to slap the term on so that it kind of gives us some credibility. But there are a number of people who are really doing what deconstruction is, which is to look at a text and go to the original languages or look at the text critically to see if you have interpreted the meaning properly. And when you deconstruct the text, it's usually away from whatever the, maybe the accepted meaning is. Like you're finding it, you're discovering something that's causing you to doubt that the meaning that's always been associated with the text is really the meaning of the text. And and that's been going on with, with, with the manuscript evidence for Christianity, both in the Old and New Testament, for generations. That people have done this, done it critically, and and this is why you see, especially in Germany, in a couple hundred last couple hundred years, and you'll see that these theologians have have tried to interpret, reinterpret the text, and and also start to doubt the text. Like, why would we think that that, for example, that Jude is really the brother of of Jesus, who's writing Jude, or that John really wrote First John, Second John, Third John, or that Peter really wrote First Peter and Second Peter? These kinds of doubts have come up by people who are trying to reinterpret and see what's the real, what can I learn about from the text that may not be what you think it is. 
And so I think there is some value in, in, in churches also. Not, for example, if you've got like a study Bible or, um, well, good study Bibles when you open up Jude, there'll be a couple of pages in front of Jude in which the uh, Bible authors or the Bible committee or the publisher is trying to establish what is the criticism around Jude's authorship or how do we know? In other words, they're making a case for why they think this really is Jude, the brother of Jesus, who wrote this. And the reason why they're doing it is because over the years, people have tried to deconstruct the text and maybe even doubt the authorship of the text. And you see this now, especially, right, when, well, did you, I just got, well, I just, you know, I post so much stuff on social media. And, and usually when I'm posting, I'm posting mostly uh, the work of others who are in my lane, who I read something, oh, that's good, let's get it out to our audience. And and I posted something recently, and at the first right away, people come back and that they don't trust. Like Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. He never condemned it. I, you hear that online so often, Bill. Uh, so in other words, can I reinterpret maybe the meaning of this? Maybe you're wrong about this. Maybe Sodom and Gomorrah were not destroyed because of their, this. as Jude says, they're chasing after strange flesh, right? Their sexual immorality, according to Jude. Maybe it's just that they were not being um, hosp hospitable. Mm -hmm. This is often this is often used as a way of interpreting the passage in Sodom and Gomorrah. So, so what they're trying to do is say, hey, maybe the meaning that's behind the text is not what you think it is, and that would allow me then to embrace any number of views that I think the culture holds that I'm more comfortable with. Let's just be honest. What's what's driving it? Here's what I love, and I think Keller even talked about this as we were talking about Keller, is that if 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 you're not wrestling with God. Uh, it's, it, when, you know, anytime you wrestle, it's it's a. He, he said this for sure. He talked about how when you wrestle, it's about contradicting the movement of the other. Right? Nothing is in unit. It's not dancing. It's you're fighting. You're contradicting each other physically. Mm -hmm. And and if you're not wrestling with God, if if God agrees with you, if God has to agree with you in order to be the God you would pursue, He's probably not God. He's probably <laughs> something of your own making. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In the end, if there is a God, He is so utterly different than us that you would expect that everything that we find naturally desirable in our fallen nature is probably not going to be of God, because He's so utterly different than we are. Mm -hmm. And so you would expect that. But but what we see is. People are trying to really, what are we deconstructing to what goal? To end up with a worldview that meets our desires, oh, our yeah. likes, our preferences, our moral preferences, all of it. We're trying to get back to a me universe. But if there is a God, you would expect that a lot of what you believe is probably going to contradict what God would, would, would want because he sees the big picture and you don't. Yeah. So I think in the end, it's important for us to realize that, yeah, there are people, uh, but that's been going on also for centuries. Who are trying to look at the text and say, well, maybe, you know, can I, why, what, what's, what's the ambition there? Mm -hmm. What is it that is driving you to reinterpret the text or to deacon? Something's driving it. And it's not always, usually it's not that there's some, you know, uh, reason in the text to, to, it's, it's that you've, you're driven by something that you want to, you now you're looking for cracks. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. So, yeah. Comment that came in. I believe people who walk away don't fully comprehend how much God loves them, and they also feel like they are rejected by biblical beliefs. Yeah, I think that, that if you look at just sociological studies about our desire for acceptance and approval, whether you're a believer or not, forget it, say there's no God. If you just studied human nature and humans, uh, one sociologist called it the core need that we have is to be accepted and embraced. 
and the, of course, the reason why we have that core need is because it and, and is only satisfied by the, the, the creator himself. And we're designed in the image of a triune God in which uh, three members of the Godhead are in perfect relationship from the beginning. So, so we desire that kind of relationship because it's in our, it's in our DNA. We're created in the image of a triune God. And, and so that core need to be accepted. Now, the question is, where do you find the acceptance? So when your identity is as, as part of a community, that's where you're going to look for that acceptance. If mm-hmm. your identity is in Christ, you're going to look for that acceptance from Jesus. So it's really about, and, and why does it ever surprise you? You know, I always say that if, if, if you um, have this, uh, if someone serves you a glass of water, but you could go across the street and they've got really good sparkling water over there. But, but this guy's putting the water on you right in front of you. You're probably just going to drink the water that's right in front of you, even though there's a better water across the street. This one is available right now. This one is sitting right in front of you. It requires nothing for you to reach out and drink it. And that's what I think people do when they, they look the, the, the satisfaction they're looking for, of course, is found in God. But that group that they're look that is sitting right around them, they don't have to go very far to get it there. So we typically uh, try to satisfy eternal unseen desires, right? For an unseen being with the finite seen beings that are all around us. <laughs> so, so we, we have this core need and we find it satisfied in the approval of our community. But guess what? If your community does not believe anything in scripture, now suddenly you need to deconstruct whatever you thought you the scripture taught because you want to satisfy the core need with that glass of water that's sitting on your table right now rather mm-hmm. than the one across the street. And I think that's part of what drives this. Jim, when I host a show in the afternoon and questions come in and I, I always hope and pray that I will rightly handle the word of God. And of course, I'm wondering if people are expressing curiosity or if they're looking for a gotcha moment or you never quite know. Uh, so I always right. pray with everything that comes in. And I'm not saying this is at all uh, a gotcha moment because it's not. But here's a really interesting question. And I believe this listener is just genuinely curious because there's confusion. How is the resurrection of Jesus different from uh, Jairus's daughter or Lazarus? Weren't those two resurrected? And, well, you know, every question that comes in, I always pray that the, the, the answer will be, you know, you know biblically satisfying and, and enriching because um, I never want to create confusion. But I mean, this is a great question. Well, right. So the, the God who can defeat death uh, defeats death. Right. But 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 Jairus, but the daughter and, and Lazarus, they, they didn't they, they died again. They didn't they weren't eternally resurrected. That's the difference in Jesus is that he doesn't. He doesn't delay death. That's what happens with the other two. He defeats death. That's totally different. Mm-hmm. So and, you, to delay death, it's kind of like, well, if I get a reprieve and I, I get cancer treatment and I get an extra 10 years. Right. But but that's what that's different than well, I now I've been given eternal life. Yeah. And when Jairus' daughter and Lazarus came back, they didn't have glorified bodies. They died again. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, but I think in the end, you were, we're getting every one of these, every one of these experiences that you see in scripture. And often we've had personal experiences that give us a taste of what heaven might be like, but it's not, you're not in heaven. So, so for example, every summer, you know, I, I serve with this ministry at Billy Graham Association where we take officers to Alaska 
and these are an environment that you're completely secluded. It's a small group of people who just love on these officers for that week. And at the end of that week, every one of them is like speechless. They're not quite sure how to express what they've just experienced because you're so remote. It's surrounded by the beauty of Alaska and a people that are so Christ focused, so gospel centered and love these people so well that they are left speechless. But what they're really experiencing, I think, is, is this little taste, a, a glimpse of what our lives in eternity will be like. But of course, it's finite because it's on this side of the grave. Mm -hmm. So we're living between these two gardens, right? The garden from yeah. which we fell and the garden to which we'll be restored. Oh, yeah. But occasionally we get a glimpse of what that garden might be like. Mm, so good. And when that, and this is what scripture does. It gives us small glimpses. Yeah. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. We're going to take a little break. We come back, continue our discussion about uh, people that go through what they call a deconstruction. Um, they're saying that their faith doesn't make sense anymore and they start rejecting aspects of a faith they grew up with. And you know that they knew what they were talking about at the time and now they've walked away. If you have a um, someone in your life, a family member or a friend that you have walked uh, with for a long time because they're, they're walking away from their faith and you want uh, to ask a question, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. You can go learn more about Jim Wallace at coldcasechristianity.com. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. My guest today is Jay Warner Wallace, and we're talking about people who are deconstructing or are deconstructing their faith, or basically walking away or uh, rejecting aspects of the Christian faith. And a bunch of questions have come have come in, Jim. One is, can someone be a true believer in Christ and be born again and still walk away from their faith? Oh, boy, this is like the classic question. It is. It comes to whether you, your faith per, um, can persevere or it's a theological question. I, I actually think that, that uh, no, you cannot truly be a, a someone who comes to faith because I think that God has the power to persevere those he calls, um, to preserve those he calls. And so I think um, what that would mean then is... And look, by the way, this is not unusual. This is not different than in all the time when atheists will say they'll they'll say, Jim, you, you say you were you were never an atheist. If you were a real atheist, you would never have really become a Christian. Interesting. So it's not like we're the it's not like we're the only ones who do this. Everyone <laughs> on every side takes the same position. You weren't really what is if you've changed, then you weren't really who you said you were to begin with. So it's not as though this is unusual to Christianity, but but we would ground it not in our skepticism about the nature of the person we're talking to. We would ground it in what we think is the power of a holy God who has the power to to preserve those he calls. So so I think that in the end, um, you would have to look. A lot of us. This is why I always say, Bill, that that I didn't uh, become a Christian and then years later find the evidence for it. I came to Christianity through my doubts, mm. through all of those questions. I think a lot of us, and this is why I'm concerned when, when we've just had an experience or we were raised in the church, we get baptized when we're eight 
and we've never really looked at all the reasons, all the stuff that's out there. And then what happens, you're 18, and now you're deconstructing because you never constructed your way in to begin with. Yeah, interesting. You never knew that there was a construction you could have made. So now you're finding all the reasons why I can now go chase whatever I want to chase. So I do think that that if you're somebody, that's that's why I think in the end, it all comes down to how is it you came in, right? Mm-hmm. So at least for me, I'm glad I came in this way because it's not as though I became, I was a Christian my whole life, and then I discovered all kinds of ways to answer the objections. That's true for a lot of people who read our books. They're lifelong Christians, and now they want to be able to answer the objections. But if you come in through your objections, then you're really already there mm-hmm. before you even uh, take a first move. Jim, when I hear stories of deconstruction, usually what I hear attached to those are uh, stories of deep personal pain. It seems like something has been really wounding in that person's life. And that's when they start to say, I felt neglected or rejected or abused, and I just want to not believe anymore. What are your uh, experience with that? Well, okay, I'll, I'll, I don't know if I can't remember if, if Billy, if you and I ever talked about this, but but a lot of the work we're doing with trauma, uh, if it's police officers or anybody else, uh, is very revealing. How do you how do you move past trauma? Trauma is this kind of thing that basically it's when is defined typically as you have an expectation of the world or a way you see the world, and then something happens that completely shatters what you thought was true. And this doesn't have to be necessarily an injury. It could be any event in your life that shatters the way you used to think about things. Mm-hmm. So it turns out trauma is largely worldview-based. How do I make sense of this? And when you suffer a trauma, it can knock you to your to your knees. And if you stay down there, that's called post-traumatic stress syndrome, right? This is this is this is a disorder. This is uh, not being able to get back to your level of functioning as you first experience the trauma. If you can get back to that level of functioning, we call that resiliency. But if you can get back and do even better than you did before the trauma, that's called post-traumatic growth. How do you get to post-traumatic growth? Instead of being in post-traumatic stress disorder or just, just resiliency back where I was, well, secular studies now call this process meaning-making. I call it meaning finding because it turns out you can't just like make some version of the world. But here's what it it comes down to. Can you place the traumatic event in an overarching story of your life to see how it is your life might have benefited from the experience you had? And on the backside, you're now better prepared or better able to do this new thing you're going to do now because of the injury or because of the traumatic experience. It's people who flourish are able to place this event in the overarching story of their life. Now, for those of us who have thought deeply about the Christian worldview, when we have a traumatic event, we're able to see what God had in it for me. Why would God allow me? If you can't answer that question because you haven't thought deeply about your faith, you're probably going to start to deconstruct it because you aren't equipped to place the trauma in the overarching story of what God might achieve. And and this is this read the book of Job. I mean, it's, it's figuring out where, what is it that God has for me in this? Like, what is it I'm supposed to do with this? If you can see it, but you'd have to have a pretty deep theological perspective on what, how God acts in the world. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, if you're not equipped in that area, then it's going to be really easy for you to say, well, no, this shouldn't have happened to me. This makes no sense. And the Christians, I've experienced these with Christians. Why would, why would God allow that to happen? When you can place it in the overarching story, 
you do you actually have what we call post traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of what I'm seeing with people who are saying, well, yeah, I experienced this in the church, I experienced this in life. Well, it's because we never really had constructed a worldview that was so robust that we could place trauma accurately oh. in the course of our story. Yeah. So it's like we're thinking about worldview now for the first time after we got punched in the face. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that that makes it hard. Yeah. Does if it you ever. think about it if you think about it before you get punched, you know how to swing back. Yeah. So well said, Jim Wallace. So it seems that as I was thinking about what causes or what instigates people wanting to deconstruct, when I think of some of the issues in the world today, what comes to the top of my head are issues of surrounding sexuality, uh, salvation, and hell. Okay. Yep. That's well, some, I, I, those seems to be the, the hot topics. Well, okay. So that's, that's what we're talking about. It's all moral. Here's yes, what I mean. All moral. Yep. Because sexuality is like what moral um, boundaries will I accept? If it's about salvation, well, how could God be moral if he chooses a certain way? Right. If it's about hell, it's how could God be moral right. or the source of moral virtue if he would allow this thing to happen? So, so look, here's what I would say. Um, if you got somebody, I think that sometimes bad answers or no answers uh, are more debilitating in somebody who's like questioning and starting to question. I think you have to allow, we talked about this before. I think you and I were, were, for young people, it turns out that questioning is not the cancer. It's, it's if they're in an environment where they don't feel like they're allowed to question or their questions are utterly dismissed or discouraged. It, it turns out if you're in an environment with parents who are willing to talk about this, well, here's what I'm thinking. Here's another all perspective here. Let's how about, how about this? Just, but number, don't, don't shout over or, or run over the objection. Hear it. Be conversational about it. Don't be shaken by it. Don't react anxiously. So these kinds of conversations come without anxiety, yeah. without a sense of urgent, I got to run you over with my right. view on this. Well, okay. So that this, this kind of conversational uh, uh, dialogue, interaction back and forth, where skepticism about Joshua Dobbs is allowed in our house, ends up producing pretty well-balanced Vikings fans. Well, the same thing is true when we are asking questions about our faith. If you're in an environment where the questions are actually embraced, but you actually have an answer, or if you don't have an answer, you're willing to entertain about how to get it. It's it's in those kinds of places where 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 young people sense that their parents are confident enough in their own beliefs that they don't get hysterical, that you have a much better chance of having kids who don't deconstruct. Hmm. So it's up to us not to like point by point be able to refute you because that just is running over people too, but to be engaged in a dialogue where we can talk about these things. You know, I'm not going to move from my positions that I hold as a parent and not every one of my kids is going to hold that same position. Now, here's a thing that I think is really a challenge, Bill. It may take me a couple seconds to parse this out. So maybe if you want to do it on the other side of a break, but let me just say that I think that the love of God is impossible for us to express to others because God is the one perfect fullness of both grace and truth. Mm-hmm. We a, aren't. We we are out of balance always. Yeah, Jim, that's a good tease. So let's um, take a break and then we come back. We can tee this up again. Cool. All, all right, Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. Please go to coldcasechristianity.com. Look at his books, his writing, his blogs, his podcast, and everything over at his website. It's sensational. We'll take a break and be right back. 
Susie Larson, host of Susie Larson Live. When you sponsor a child in need, you change their life. Your child learns that God loves them more than they can imagine and that he has special plans for their life. Your child gets help with school and is taught leadership, life skills, and how to overcome poverty and even succeed in life. Your child will get nutritious food and vital medical care that often saves lives. You might not be able to change the world, but for one child, you can change theirs. Meet the kids and find your child at MyFaithRadio.com. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. I'm back with Jay Warner Wallace. We're talking about deconstructing faith. and You have a loved one. I, I'm seeing many text coming in, so I appreciate that. And, and if you can hang into hour two, I think we're going to get a chance to answer a bunch of these questions that have come in. So, uh, Jim, let's uh, go back. You had teed up something about uh, God's love and grace, and I wanted to give you a little bit more space to talk about it. So, Yeah, you, you'll see this all the time, right? This that When you see uh, the description of, like, what is God's nature? There's lots of ways you can answer that. Well, he's all-powerful, he's all-benevolent, he's all... okay. One of the quickest ways, and you see it over and over again, both the Old and the New Testament, is that God is the perfect balance of truth and grace. Sometimes you'll see it as justice and mercy. These two ideas that there's there's both truth and justice on one side of this balance. And, and it's not that God is somehow taking away from one to balance it. It's that God holds these two things in their fullness. And of course, if things are both full on both sides, they're balanced. And because God can do this as a perfect being, we can't. And what you'll see, for example, is that God is described this way as the balance or the perfect fullness of truth and grace in the Old Testament. It's in the Psalms. It's in many, many places. You'll also see it in the New Testament in the Gospel of John, the first chapter. It says that Jesus came in the fullness, think about this, of truth and grace. Now, is that just saying, well, Jesus is a cool guy? said a lot of true things, and he was gracious. No, that is a description for readers who would recognize it immediately as you're saying that Jesus is divine because only one being holds truth and grace in its fullness. That's God. Mm -hmm. And he comes in the fullness of truth and grace. He's God. So so this is what the claim is. And well, if you think about it, that's what God loves. He loves by expressing truth and grace at the exact same in fullness. Now, every admonition in Scripture toward us is because we're out of balance in one direction or the other. You folks are too judgmental. You folks are not loving enough. It's this out of balance that God has to deal with in our nature. When we love others, we often think in order to love them, it's about just putting up with any kind of nonsense. It's all grace. It's all mercy. But there's no truth in that. We don't even want to speak the truth. Because we don't want to, you know, we want to maintain a relationship so we can share the gospel. Well, okay, that is not how God loves. God loves by directing both truth and grace in equal fullness. So how do you do that? How do we do that? Because I, I could love somebody, take them to dinner, be, you know, love just love on them in all these ways that look like physical affection. But then I'm going to speak truth about their behavior. I'm going to lose them. Well, there you go. Mm. That's the problem. And yeah. like we talked about, we're between the two gardens. Right. And now this is why we can never really love like God. But every time we try to, and why is it so difficult? Because it's not about all just mercy and all just, you know, grace. It's about holding these two things in balance. Because that's what real love is. It's holding you, but also pulling you off the tracks before the train hits you. It's both of these things expressed in fullness. I don't do that well. Mm. 
and 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 by the way, we we constantly struggle with can I say this at dinner to this person <laughs> I'm trying to win? Right. Right. How do, how do I how do I level the the justice and truth side uh and hold on to what their perception of me as gracious and merciful? You know, this is where it it gets in this so I don't have an easy answer for you. But I know this, most people I know who would say, well, I'm trying to love these folks. So I want to reach them with the gospel. No, you're not really, because as God loves, you would have to speak truth to them in equal fullness as you're expressing mercy toward them. Mm-hmm. And I get it. I get it. I understand your your goal here. I, I, I want to honor your goal. But the reality of it is, is that that's not really love, not the way that God loves. Mm-hmm. Hey, Jim, here's a question that came in that might address exactly what you just got done talking about. Uh, I have a sister married to a man who was divorced and has three adult children. The children, um, all married, and all their children live with someone, never married, and all have two or three kids. So my sister has recently started saying, as long as they love each other, God shouldn't have a problem. I answered that, of course, we love them, but it wasn't God's design any suggestions on how to further approach the conversation? Well, this is tough, right? Here's why. Because it turns out we, we don't, all of, even all of us who would say we identify as Christ followers, we don't all love the scripture at the same level. We don't all have the same scriptural foundation. So, so in other words, you could, you know, if I said, well, yeah, but do, does, it, does it matter if it lines up with what God's word says? Oh, well, I've already deconstructed God's word. So it allows for me to hold this view, <laughs> you right. know, so there's, exactly. there's the problem. Yeah. So, so in the end, what you have to do is we have to model it. We have to say, well, no, I love you. And I love the fact that you love them enough to want them to be happy. But at the same time, I also know that truth is important and, and what God says is important. And and do you even know what God says about this or that or whatever it may be that we are dealing with here? You know, Jesus went into the we have one record of Jesus being drinking with with these folks that it was after Matthew gets saved as a tax collector and he brings all those folks over to his house. It's not like Jesus, you know, if it was it's not even in one of the Gospels, it's not even in the Gospel of John at all. If it was something that that Jesus was modeling so we could all copy it, you would think it would be in every Gospel. It turns out that if you want to look at what Jesus did more than that, it's all kinds of other stuff that we don't see as prescriptive. Why are we seeing this? You know, it's okay. Jesus drank with, you know, with, with drinkers and no, he didn't. He, he called them from that life. Yeah. He went to where people, this is why when questioned by the, by the, the Jews on this, why are you, why are you with sinners eating with sinners? Because he says, because the sick need a doctor. He's describing their behavior as sick. Okay. It's not like he's approving it. He's saying, I've got to heal them. They need to change or they're going to die. And and so there's the there's the justice part again. So it turns out we now look that may not be persuasive to people who don't even know the scripture, and identify as. And by the way, maybe they don't even identify as Christ followers at all. So here's the, the thing: it, 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 we we have to model this as best we can. And and how do I speak the truth to you in love? But it's not about not speaking the truth. That's not love. It's speaking the truth in love. So we have to, and in in in, in this is what I would say, even if you do this as well as you can, Jesus tells us that you're going to be persecuted because you believe in me and you follow me. And I'm going to divide homes. I'm not here to bring peace. I'm here 
for just the opposite. As a matter of fact, we typically read that passage where Jesus says that families are going to be divided and, and parents can be divided from their kids and vice versa. And we read that and we say, oh, that's because some of us are going to be Christians and some of us are not. No, that's not actually what's going to happen. Instead, you may be a household full of people who identify as Christ followers, but only half of you want to follow Jesus's teaching. And that's what's going to divide us. Mm-hmm. Is that what, what am I willing to accept? as a Christian. And what do I feel like? No, God has told me I can't accept that. Jim, we're going to divide over those issues. Yeah. One of the things you said about your own children in conversation is you will always hold firm to what you believe, but it sounded like you wanted to always create a space in which they were allowed to ask questions. And if people feel they have a safe space to bring their questions, they may not feel like they're going to be under attack, which is probably a good relationship to have where you can be a safe space where people can bring their questions well and one thing you can do and we're running out of time here is one thing you can do is you can at least like i don't necessarily want to express what i believe scripture is teaching always in response to some statement from my kids i, I want to be expressing that all the time so that so that my kids already know how i would respond if they were going to bring this issue up because they already know how i structured a case in my head from scripture to get here so, but at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm wide open and I, and look, humility is super important, right? We talked about the value of humility. I think yeah. one of the prior shows, humility, holding these things and saying, look, I, it's not about what I believe. It's about what scripture is teaching. Am I going to bend my knee to this or not? Uh, there's times I can tell you that I don't even like that. I can't embrace the cultural view on that because it makes their life a lot easier. Or you love somebody maybe who's active in a lifestyle that you just don't, you cannot approve, mm-hmm. but you love this person. They're part of your family. I wish the scripture didn't teach this, Yeah, Boy, but it does, but it. it's not yeah. me. It's not me doing it. I, I wish it was different, but it's, it's what God wants from me. Mm-hmm. Well, we as believers really need to lovingly uh, engage with the seekers and the doubters and answer their questions, even if it means answering, I don't know, and I'll look for the answer and get back to you. I think uh, when you talk about having humility, Jim, when people complain about Christians, sometimes I hear that we're always too self-righteous. Well, this is, this is probably true because this is, a, <laughs> this is, this is pride is the, is the cancer that is eaten all of us because yeah. we, this is why humility is the only cure. Yeah. And it's, it's pride shaded in any number of other selfish motives. But it's yes, it's it's that we are all that's who that's our base nature that we have to either try to submit, and that's why most of the time when you talk about the Christian faith, it's it's described as an act of surrender, not an act of of it's not the doing right. Yeah. In Romans, Paul says it's nothing about your doing, so that nobody can boast, because we typically think of well, what do I need to do to please God, and I need to believe these things and argue for these. No, you just need to surrender to everything that is that God is teaching us. All right, Jim. Thanks so much. We'll look forward to our next visit. Have a great day. Thanks so much. All right. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.